this is um, uh, something which is practical, it's sensible, it's workable, and uh, we hope it's going to be the core of uh, what will turn into a highly workable um, uh, set of, uh, of guidance. Um, we are trying our best to work with the, um, the task force and the joint deans from the faculties. We've already informed the Department of Health. Um, we've sent this off to the Office of the Chief Dental Officer of Public Health England. You know, we're, we're, we're plastering the world with it. You know, and everybody we talked so far, they've all said, yeah, this is, this is good. We can work with this. This doesn't involve doing too much at all. We just have to get organised. Hello and welcome back to Series 3 of the Smile Revolution podcast, brought to you by Smile Revolution. I'm Victoria Wilson, a dental therapist. This podcast is created for you, the dental profession, to inspire you through the content shared by the wonderful interviewees. And for sure, we need this more than ever during this time in isolation. This podcast is dedicated to oral health promotion with a mission to inspire dental hygienists, dental therapists and the dental profession now and in your career moving forward all around the world. COVID-19 has had such an impact on the dental profession. My heart goes out to each and every one of you whose lives have been impacted in varying degrees. Throughout this series, we will be sharing content on how to open doors of opportunity during this time. The eminent dentist I had the pleasure of interviewing for this recording is Mark Cronshaw, who has held the position of professor at the University of Genoa in Italy since 2014, where he teaches the Advanced Masters in Science course in Oral Laser Applications and is a co-director of the International Dental Laser Training Academy Limited, to name a few positions, and is actively involved in clinical research on laser tissue interaction. Dr. Cronshaw is the president of the Pandora Dental Group, an association of private dental surgeons founded in recognition of the need for evidence-based best practice and guidance during the COVID-19 pandemic and for the past six weeks has been researching with colleagues and pooling resources to create a protocol that we discuss in this podcast recording today with a pathway which mitigates the risk of cross-infection to patients to less than 0.1% enabling the profession to get back to treating the nation's dental needs at the earliest opportunity. Through listening to our conversation, I hope you learn, gain inspiration and ideas for furthering your career paths, supporting oral health promotion to achieve oral health for all. I am absolutely delighted to have you, Mark, on the Smile Revolution podcast today. Thank you so much for coming on to the recording. Thank you very much for the invite. Uh, I very much welcome the opportunity to share with some quite exciting news uh, with the people who are listening, uh, because although we're in very challenging times, there's some very uh, uh, interesting developments, and I think it'd be great to be able to have the opportunity to let some people have a little bit of good news for a change. Well, exactly. That's certainly what I got from this document that we're about to share. So to give the listeners a bit of a background, Mark has been working tirelessly over the past weeks, months, well, short time that we've had out of surgery with 
a number of colleagues to put together a protocol for us as the dental profession to return to work safely and to be able to do this sooner rather than later. And one thing that I think I really need to highlight first is that for you all, through this document, it stated that we would be able to return to work, given the permission to do so, at a risk of 0.1%. Absolutely. And that's what it's all about, is about making it abundantly plain, not just to um, uh, the team, but us as patients, that we can offer a very safe environment as we always have. Absolutely. But 0.1% is certainly reassuring to read, and I'm sure for the listeners to hear as well. Can you please expand on that of how you've got to this such, well, such a low figure? It's all a matter of risk mitigation. I mean, life is full of risk and it's a matter of what's acceptable risk. So what we decided was to see what we would need to do in order to turn um, our practices into an area where there was a very, very low uh, prospect indeed of there being a risk. Because you can never entirely eliminate a risk, you can only reduce the risk. And to eliminate the risk, you'd have to have an operating theatre and that would be so helplessly uneconomic, you can't do it. Um, So we analyze the problem and myself along with 150 of my very dedicated uh, colleagues and we looked at the science and the evidence base associated with this and we looked at every single step along the journey that the patient would need to take in order to, to get the risk down to these fabulously low figures. We want to identify low risk patients, ones who are the ones who are least likely to be carrying the bug and that's a matter of uh, screening them at a distance. Then we also make sure that the people bringing them um, to the practice, they're also a low risk. We encourage them not to bring somebody into the practice because that multiplies the risk. We then, when they arrive, mammography. So we've got a, a non-contact uh, uh, thermometer, which is able to check their temperature to make sure it's below 37.3 degrees centigrade. And then at that point, we then um, have them wash their hands using a special uh, anti-microbial um, um, rub. Then we have them use a special mouthwash, and there are a variety of products that you can use for that, and that reduces any um, uh, pathogen microbial load um, further. When they come into the surgery, we're adopting additional layers of protection, both for the team as well as for the patient. So, for example, we may be using a lot more rubber dam, or we may be using devices like the Isobac, And these are all designed to help mitigate the risk of uh, pathogens being spread by aerosol-generated procedures, such as using an ultrasonic or picking up a drill or using a laser. And one way or another, we measured the... from the evidence base, the risks associated with each of these procedures, and we quantified how far we can reduce the risk associated, for instance, with aerosol-generated uh, um, uh, sprays, to the extent that by having multiple layers, we can get the figures down to less than 0.1%, which we regard as being an acceptable figure. Absolutely. And I just think it would be great now to take the listeners through this document, um, this protocol outlining the eight steps that have been identified for us as the dental profession to take on board 
to be able to return to work. But I just, before doing so, I just also wanted to highlight something that was also very interesting for me to read at the beginning. And it's an argument for us, obviously, as the dental profession, to get back to work as soon as possible. You highlight that 1.3 million, million adults appointments have been missed. And this is in the UK alone. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And not only um, is it the missed appointments, it's the missed opportunities for identifying awful diseases like oral cancer. There are 12,000 cases of that every year. And just during the past two months, that's potentially, if everybody attended the dental surgery, which they don't, but if, even if only half the population comes to attend for a regular annual checkup, that's potentially 500 cases a month. Uh, which could have been identified inside of a, a uh, general dental practice setting. Um, so I was talking to Professor Mike Lewis, who's a professor of oral medicine at Cardiff University. And I said to him, Mike, how many cases do you normally see uh, referred into by dentists and hygienists of uh, oral cancer in a month? He said, well, where we um, operate in Gwent, we usually see on a single clinic about 10 on a single clinic every week. And then I run another clinic with a few more. And I said, well, how many have you seen in the past um, a month or so during the lockdown. He said, well, in the last fortnight, I've seen two or three that have been referred in by GPs. And so the quite literally hundreds, if not a thousand or more people who otherwise would have been identified uh, with a condition which is potentially life-threatening and uh, to correct it by late diagnosis, it involves doing some pretty horrendous uh, disfiguring surgery and uh, it's very complicated. So apart from the human suffering associated with it, we're extremely worried about the costs as well um, to, to the NHS. And, so, and that's just one example where by our not being able to do our normal routine screening, um, it's, it's building up a, a what could only be described as a, a, a potential health crisis, not just an oral health issue, but also a general um, health problem. Yeah, and like you say in your document as well, 88% of this type of cancer is preventable. So if we're not diagnosing it early, what, you know, what is the consequences going to be? It's very worrying. It's just one uh, example. I mean, there are other areas as well. I mean, for instance, uh, uh, there are 808,000 child appointments that have been missed. And that's just in the past two months. And we've no idea how long it's going to be before we permitted to get back into practice. Um, those children, they've got incipient pit and fissure caries, which is easily treatable, just with a little lick of fissure sealant. You know, and I have my hygienist and my therapist do this as a matter of course. And if you leave that for months, it turns into a cavity. And then that cavity turns into a big problem. And without COVID-19, last year, the NHS spent over 50 million pounds paying for general anesthetic extractions in children, which I think is terrible. What's the figure going to be like for 2021? You know, it's a night and uh, it's it's the added complexity and the suffering for these poor patients as well as the huge cost to the national purse at a time when frankly it's going to be stressed and uh, there's so many different examples of this and uh, periodontal diseases and other one you know I, I could talk a lot about uh, the the worries I have not just for the conditions that um, we would normally be treating but the, for the lack of monitoring and the lack of the kind of scrutiny our patients are used to because we, we see more of our yes. patients as, as dentists and hygienists than the, um, than the average GP. Absolutely, I know. So we need to get back to work. So now let's break down this document and gain an insight into how it's going to be possible for us at a 0.1% risk.
start, Mark, with number one, pre-treatment screaming. You briefed over this um, as you introduced the general protocol, but can you just now go into this in a bit more depth for me? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is uh, involving a telephone interview with them. We're thinking about moving over to teledentistry in my practice, where we'll do a little video um, consultation with the patient, and we'll ask them a number of key questions. Have they been ill? Have they been associated with someone who's been ill within the previous 14 days? Are they showing any signs and symptoms? Have they had a fever? And uh, we're then asking, have they traveled from an area which is a high-risk zone? And uh, then we're looking for other risk factors associated uh, uh, with the disease and so um, if uh, occupationally they're particularly at high risk then again you know this is potentially a high uh, a higher risk patient and that might affect when we would see them so we're, we're, we're doing scoring on the patient where we're trying to identify low risk um, uh, patients whom then uh, we would uh, be prepared to welcome into the practice. Yeah. And are you going to be measuring this on a scoring basis? Obviously, it's a risk assessment. Yep. If there's anything that comes into the risk, what do you feel is the cutoff line? Um, we want to reduce the risk as far as we reasonably can. So sure. there's certain things which are an absolute um, uh, trigger for an, uh, a deferral of treatment. So if somebody has had um, a, uh, a recent uh, uh, febrile illness or been in contact with somebody um, who has within the previous uh, 14 days, we would then defer treatment. Sure. And uh, um, the, uh, the the point of the exercise is to uh, uh, protect both the the, uh, the other patients who come to our practice as well as the team. And there are very few dental conditions where, um, for the sake of uh, of a deferral of ten to fourteen days, it's going to make any odds. And uh, in the event that they do have an acute problem, then with the teledentistry we're doing, we'll be able to then manage it at a distance. Or if we were obliged to see them because of their acute um, needs, if it was a, a symptomatic patient, we would then be making referral to an appropriate uh, um, uh, centre uh, where they're able to adopt the very highest um, uh, levels of cross-infection control. Okay, I'm with you, yeah. So you will still be adopting the referral system if needed for acute at-risk potential patients. Absolutely, because it's all about risk mitigation. And so um, the majority of people out there will not have the virus or they'll have had it and they'll be immune. And we just need to protect um, those uh, those patients who are most at risk. I mean, in my practice, we see many vulnerable people, people who are elderly or people who've got uh, various morbidities of one form or another. And um, we have a duty of care to protect them as well as to look after the team. And so in view of that, if we have something which is a, a trigger for concern, that then um, in turn it would be um, um, a trigger for us to say, you know, let's, let's just give, give it a little bit of time and then we'll see you. Absolutely. Now, moving on to point two, it's about cleaning the mouth. Absolutely. Well, um, the um, the evidence base shows that you can have um, the the virus uh, present just in blood and saliva, and that being the case, uh, it's appropriate to reduce that viral load. And um, there are a number of products that you can use to achieve that. You can use some hydrogen peroxide as a rinse, and there, um, one and a half to three percent hydrogen peroxide mouthwash can be effective. Or you can use hypochlorous acid. And um, so, um, I'm going to be using a product called Cliniset, which is 
80 parts per million um, hypochlorous acid. Um, this is a non-toxic um, material. They actually use it in the food industry in order to extend the life of things like strawberries, would you believe? Um, so it's not toxic to people, but it is a very effective uh, viricidal agent. And by having them um, rinse with this, this will then reduce any pathogens present. And it's, it's an additional step along the way of reducing risk. Yeah. And the hydrogen peroxide concentration in that needs be, needs to be between, as specified in this document, between 1.5 and 3%. That's right. I mean, uh, hydrogen peroxide is a very effective oxidizing agent and it starts to have an effect on viruses as low as 0.1%. But the most effective range for it is uh, between around about 15 to 3%. And you will be getting them to use this and the, the guideline and what's set out in this document is to be using it prior to entering the practice or the clinical area. Prior to entering the clinical area rather than prior to entering the, the practice because we have yeah. to ensure um, compliance. And in fact, when we're, uh, we're planning that when we've completed, say, a hygiene therapy, we're actually going to give them a, uh, a little sample of this material um, uh, as, a, uh, uh, as a gift. And uh, I was talking to the manufacturer, we're going to make up our own little bottles of it so they can have some just as a spray that they can carry with them, not for their future dental appointments, but just as a, as a, as a measure to help them. And uh, I think there's a lot of anxiety in the community generally and anything we can do in order to help uh, people get out of their homes and back into their normal lives is to be welcomed. And as a profession, I think this is one of the ways in which we can help them. Um, when it comes to uh, the immediate uh, requirements of cross-infection for my surgery, uh, we will want them to have supervised hand washing as well as supervised uh, use of a, of a mouthwash because this is an, um, an airborne and contact um, uh, born, um, uh, uh, virus. And if we can just mitigate the possibility that they have been in contact and they have got to, uh, the virus on their hands or turn to be if they um, uh, are one of these asymptomatic carriers that we've reduced the viral load and that correspondingly reduces um, uh, one of the risk factors associated with seeing our patients. Mm -hmm. But like you say they'll be they'll be asked to rinse with this prior to entering the clinical setting so from the practice pathway the flow of the patients we will have to be mindful of an area specifically allocated for this. Absolutely. And what will happen is we'll ask them to keep their appointments on time. When they arrive, they'll be met by a dedicated team member who will then take them to the station where they'll be able to do both of those procedures. And that's also when they'll be doing the thermography. So it's the thermography first, and then after that, then it's the hand wash and then the mouthwash. I don't think it's necessary to have a separate room. You can just have a dedicated area inside of the waiting room. The trick really is to greet the patients as they arrive and then take them straight to the uh, to the station. Um, part of the uh, risk uh, reduction program that we're recommending is to reduce the volume of traffic um, through um, common areas like waiting areas and things. And yeah. this is where we're having to work quite hard at our appointment books in order to stagger the appointments to make sure that we don't end up with more than a couple of people at any one time inside of the uh, the waiting area. You know, um, but I, I don't think it's necessary to have a dedicated room for this. I mean, if you have the luxury of it, then whatever not. You know, but. Uh, yeah. um, 
Uh, I don't. And in my practice, we've, we've got a dedicated area put aside. And also we've designated certain uh, places inside the waiting room. So at no time will we have more than two or three people um, waiting to go in. And the idea is that we don't have anybody waiting because they take them straight up to their uh, cleansing station, as it were, and then straight through to the surgery. Right. OK, thanks for clarifying that. Now, on point three, you move on to clean the water supply. Uh -huh. well, there is a material called hypochlorous acid, which is um, uh, basically what happens when you electrolyze um, uh, salt. And uh, this is between 80 to 100 times more effective than bleach. Yet at the same time, it's non-toxic. And there are a number of some very interesting things you can do with it. Aside from the fact that, uh, as with the Clinisept, you can use this as a mouthwash, you can also introduce it into water lines. And this can be for the ultrasonic as well as your hand pieces. And uh, this has been used for years. And, uh, it used to be something you can manufacture yourself. In fact, uh, I think um, Optidemp were the distributor for uh, something called Sterilox, which they may be reintroducing. Or you can buy it as a product and just put it into your water bottle. Um, um, the effects of which is that uh, this is not only just disinfecting the water lines, also any water you introduce into the patient's mouth is full of an antiviral agent, you know, and it's, it's another form of risk mitigation. And this moves on to point four, which I guess would help reducing the droplet release from the mouth. Um, when it comes to um, uh, reducing the spread of uh, the uh, the virus, there was concern that uh, because we're introducing um, uh, water and air mixtures, um, that is mixing the saliva and with blood, which uh, uh, has been proven to, can be contaminated with COVID-19. So among the steps that have been recommended um, to reduce contact with the uh, potentially infected tissues is to use dental dam. Um, this is something which uh, is funny enough, uh, contentious or even suggestions that uh, this is something which isn't beneficial. But we've put in things which, where we can see this reduces the amount of, uh, of, uh, of aerosol that's generated as well as mixing, reducing the amount of mixing of the aerosol with, uh, with, with the biologic tissues. And so for many restorative procedures, as far as reasonably possible, then we'll be um, introducing uh, more dental dams. And then there are other things that we can use aside from dental dams. And um, many of us are going to be using a device called the Isovac, which is a little bit like a, a mouth prop with a tongue retractor on it. And it's got very much enhanced um, suction. It's high volume evacuation. And again, it reduces the amount of ambient uh, um, spray that could otherwise escape um, uh, from uh, outside of the, uh, the immediate treatment zone. And then there's some very interesting extra oral suction devices. And uh, so um, I um, uh, bought a, a device which is, uh, um, it looks a little bit like a, a, a sort of a funnel. And uh, um, it's, you place it near the patient's mouth and uh, it's enhanced extra suction. Or there are all sorts of other novel devices that are being introduced, designed for the same. Um, between all these different steps, and these are steps with evidence base associated with them, you can then reduce the volume um, and uh, the risk associated with what they call AGPs, which are aerosol particulates, uh, down to a very low level indeed then on top of that we've got um, additional layers of protection um, many of us are installing into our practices uh, systems which are, are air purification systems 
these things have got a mixture of HEPA filters, uh, which is a very um, um, high, um, uh, ultra-fine uh, set of, uh, of filters through which it captures viral particles, as well as UVC. And the UVC light, it sterilizes the air. And with one of these things up there, if there is any ambient or viral particles still suspended in the air, inside of five minutes, it sterilizes the air and recirculates it. And so I think this is a, not necessarily something which should be mandatory, but I think it's an additional step. Because one of the things about COVID-19 is even when people are speaking, you can end up with um, uh, microfine, three to five micron viral bearing particles hanging in the air for quite long periods of time. It's a bit of a worrying thought, isn't it, when you're going around the supermarket? But inside of the dentistry, <laughs> of my practice we'll have something there which will uh, clean up the air and that will then very much help us so that the turnaround time inside the practice will be much faster yeah i think you just bringing that up now is that that is one of the fundamental reasons as well why this document was worked on because i think i'd heard and i'm sure a lot of the listeners will have heard that we were thinking about 30 minute turnaround times and from a productivity point of view and from a financial standpoint to be able to only see maybe four patients a session is going to impact um our our access and the patient's access to care substantially and what we're going to be able to do so this is a fundamental reason from my understanding and why this was produced to make the turnaround from what I read, was it between five and ten minutes? Well, the uh, the clean air systems that we're using, they're able to treat an area of 60 square metres, which is, you know, the size of a reasonable sized um, operatory inside yeah. of five minutes. And uh, as an alternative, the um, UDCs, for instance, the urgent dental centres, they're throwing up windows and leaving it for half an hour. Well, the um, economics associated with the close down of half an hour is such that it would then render it impossible for many practices to stay economic. And then there is no dentist. And then what's the risk then? You end up with uh, other untreated diseases and the risks of those, I think, far, far outweigh um, the potential risks associated with COVID-19. I mean, in truth, you know, the, the, these steps, we're, we're bending over backwards in order to help mitigate risk, but it has to be balanced by the needs of the community to be able to gain access to, to, to dentistry. And um, I'm, my concern is that they're in danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, because if they make it such that we can't afford to run our businesses then there won't be any dentists and that's something which causes us huge concern because i don't think that's been taken into account and if 70 percent of high street practices go to the wall then this is going to pose a huge public health problem in years to come and it'll be looked back as being an absolute disaster um the um the, the measures that we've outlined here are all very common sense each one is nothing particularly um, novel about it there's a few additional steps involved but it's nothing too onerous and by accumulating different layers of protection like this, we can offer a very safe environment both for our patients and for our team. Some of these things uh, I would regard as um, almost like optional extras, but they're very high visibility. So things like the extra oral suction devices or alternatively the uh, clean air systems, they're very reassuring to our patients because uh, I think a lot of them really have got quite frightened to venture out of their homes. And yet these are the very people they've got the highest treatment needs and it's most important that when they come and see us that they feel very confident that they're in a safe clean as well as caring environment 
absolutely. Just going back to the extra oral suction that you've spoken about, is there anything for the listeners that they can maybe look into that you've noted from your research that seems to be potentially one of the most effective? Well, there, there are a couple of devices out there. I mean, I don't particularly want to name um, brands, but there are a couple of leading uh, uh, devices out there uh, which are available. And um, in fact, uh, I think it's time that we had a webinar on this. You know, I, I think uh, the profession at large really could do to know more about some of the um, uh, innovative products that are out there. So I'm in discussion at present with um, the team leaders of FMC, and I'm hoping I'm going to be able to hold a webinar um, uh, later on this week. Um, but the Yes, there are mature products out there. And um, so some of the companies um, um, here in the UK are already marketing uh, devices, which mm. have been around for some years. And uh, so for a hygienist, I think this is perfect, you know, because uh, um, they're working within the systems with one of these uh, uh, devices. Um, it's a lot easier than using, say, an ISOVAC, where some patients really don't like having things touching their tongue. And it does very much reduce um, the, uh, um, the the potential for spread of um, a viral infected spray. Um, but along with all the other steps that we're taking, all of these measures uh, are intended to reduce risk, which hasn't actually been proven to cause a problem. And so we really are going the extra mile with all of this. We're setting standards represented in this document, which are a new world gold standard. And they're way above the SOPs of any other country in the developed world, um, France and Germany in Italy, in Ireland, in the USA, in Australia, all these places, they are all um, uh, reopening their dental surgeries now. And they're not going to anywhere near the degree of, uh, of extra effort that we're proposing. So with these extra steps, we feel very, very confident indeed that we do indeed have a, um, an excellent, clean and safe environment, not just for our patients, but also for our team. Yeah, absolutely. And um, point five, you speak about the PPE. Specifically, you highlight for um, AGP procedures, we need to obviously be using FFP2 masks. But you, but you're also outlining that for general routine appointments, it's it's fine to be using the FFP3 masks. I mean, the FFP3 masks are ultra-high filtration masks. And uh, these, you need a specialist fit tester to ensure that you're wearing it properly. And fit testers are few and far between. Something like 50% of people who are assessed by fit tester fail the fit testing. And these are the sort of things that really have been evolved for ITU units where they're dealing with obviously infected patients. And I don't think these really have got a place inside of a general dental practice, either for a hygienist or for a nurse. It's sort of the thing you might find inside of a UD. Where they're dealing with an infected patient, but we don't want them and we don't need them. There are many disadvantages associated with these high filtration masks. Aside from the fact that they're horribly expensive, they're extremely uncomfortable. And when you're wearing one, you can't take it off until the end of your session. So you can't even have a cup of tea. Well, uh, <laughs> I really would be happy about that. And as for the P2 masks, they offer a very high level of protection. There, with, there is a recent systematic review and meta-analysis that showed that an, in terms of the level of protection that there was no difference between a P2 and a P3 mask. And so in view of that, um, why use um, uh, such a, a, a demanding device where they're very uncomfortable, people fiddle with them, you end up with marks on your face, and one way or another, I, I, don't, I don't, just don't see that we, we really need them. Um, the, um, uh, for a non-AGP level procedure, just a standard surgical mask. I mean, 
prior to the lockdown, everybody was using standard surgical masks, and yet there is no um, uh, uh, indication of a very high incidence of COVID-19 in the dental team. That's both from China as well as internationally. And so in view of that, I think the added protection may be offered by a high filtration mask for a procedure where we know there's a, a the potential, although it's not proven, there's some added risk, such as a P2. But P3, forget it. We don't want them. You won't wear them. Okay, so forget that. No <laughs> P3. <laughs> not for the dental setting anyway, and it's sufficient to use just normal masks that we're used to. I think that's going to be reassuring for the listeners for sure. Well, I think as long as you're not using a, an aerosol generation procedure, if you are, then we do recommend that you use a P2 mask. And then also that you have some face protection too. So, you know, um, uh, my uh, uh, hygienist and my hygiene therapist, they'll be using a visor as well. Um, so between the visor, um, which will get rid of any splatter that's left after, after all these additional, uh, well, hopefully there won't be any with all these additional extra oral uh, suction devices we're using. Yeah that together with a uh, high filtration mask and it'll be very safe. Yeah, but I think that's probably been quite routine. It certainly was for me when I was in practice to always wear a mask and a visor. So I think, you know, it's, that's going to be a reassuring thing to hear moving forward that we will be able to return similar in, in one... just, it has to be workable. I mean, yeah. uh, at the end of the day, um, um, a dental practice isn't a hospital setting. Um, we're offering a very personal service to our patients, many of whom are very anxious. And uh, so, for example, um, many of my patients have got hearing problems. Well, if they're lip reading, they can't lip read through a mask, you know. And, uh, and so to be able to communicate with your patients um, uh, is absolutely critical. Um, critical. And so I think there has to be some common sense enters into this discussion. I mean, if you're in the supermarket, perhaps in the middle of an epidemic, then fine. You know, you put on a mask, but do you normally wear around, walk around with a mask and talk to people with a mask in your face? No. You know, I, I think when we see over a period of time that the number of cases of COVID-19 really has fallen off to, to zero, then progressively we'll um, maybe step back a little bit from the very high levels of cross-infection control we'll introduce. But for the time being, we would rather on the side of caution and as a result we've written a very detailed protocol that more than merely checks the boxes. Yeah absolutely and you spoke previously about a point six which is clean air using air purification systems. I think this is going to be a need within all dental settings to be able to increase that turnaround to what is outlined here. Am I right in saying that Mark? You know, it's either that or you throw it in the window and you leave your room for 30 minutes, which might be fine in summer, but come the depths of winter, it's <laughs> isn't it, Victoria? You know, I mean, I, I think um, um, when it comes to these air purification systems, we cannot prove that they're um, a necessity in dental surgery. However, I think it's very visible reassurance, both to the team as well as to patients, Plus, uh, where they are in use, for example, in South Korea, um, they've had a very low incidence of COVID-19. Um, so for a population of 50 million in South Korea, they've had 250 deaths. Well, compare that to the UK, you know, it's a different order. So they're doing something right there. And they're very keen on that. They've got over 350,000 of them um, in use in South Korea, which is where the particular device I bought comes from. And uh, I think the corresponding low um, number of, uh, of cases of the COVID-19 
I think this speaks volumes for what they're doing. So it, it just makes sense, you know. I mean, sometimes in order to develop evidence base, it takes years. We don't have years. We can't wait years. We need to get back into our practices now. And the delay yeah. is unacceptable. And so any and every step that we can take that offers reassurance to our patients as well as to our teams, this is something to be welcomed. And I, I, I don't see them as particularly expensive. And compared to the horrendous costs associated with um, reducing uh, uh, the surgery um, uh, turnover of patients, you know, it's, it's a no-brainer. Absolutely. And the clean consulting rooms, which is point seven, which is essentially, they've always been kept clean. And, you know, maybe just introducing an air purifier into there anyway, that will be something additional to do. But this is it. I mean, we, we, the, um, the, the suggested protocol um, we would recommend is a, uh, is a physical wipe over of contaminated surfaces. And then you can um, top that up using some hypochlorous acid spray. And there are a number of ways in which you can do that just with a standard little spray bottle, or you can get some specialist devices called foggers, and these produce a very fine mist of hypochlorous acid. I, I'm not going to be using a fogger inside of my surgery. And uh, I think a, uh, a treatment of contaminated surfaces is sufficient. And then maybe at the end of the day, I have the whole surgery treated with uh, a fogger. And the fogger just generates a, uh, like a, well, literally a fog of hypochlorous acid, which then doesn't have to be wiped off. And it just sterilizes the whole area. And so we'll be doing both the common areas um, as well as the surgeries at least once a day. And by doing this, then we've got a very, very clean environment. Yeah. So stepping up that a bit. But something that we're all very used to doing, working in a dental setting anyway, is cleaning surfaces all the time. It's just it. We're, we're extremely good at managing infection. I mean, let's look at some history. You know, we dealt with HIV. There's um, hepatitis B, Hep C. There's um, multi-drug resistant TB. There are all sorts of nasty bugs out there, and yet we haven't got cases where, um, through transmission through a dental surgery, it's been an issue. And so, in view of the fact that this is just yet another virus, we dentists have proven to be really, really good at managing these risks. And uh, I think there's just a, uh, an element, uh, perhaps, of uh, of, of an emotional response in the sense that people now are saying this is something which uh, you have to take additional steps to, uh, uh, to protect the team from. But I don't see this as being anything unusual. No. And point eight, lastly, it's about reducing any infection laid in aerosol spray which is released, which I guess looking back and, and reflecting back on what you've spoken about, about getting a, a patient to use the mouthwash as they enter the surgery, using um, the hydrochlorous acid in the water supply and all the other steps that have been spoken about are going to contribute and lend itself to point eight. So it's just, I guess, about being mindful and just stepping up our cross-infection control and obviously our risk assessment for patients entering the surgery. Absolutely. I think it's all about the risk assessments, Victoria, because uh, um, uh, we have to both anticipate what the risk is going to be, having quantified it, and then beyond that, we then need to have audit trials in place to ensure that um, the feedback we're getting is positive, not just for our own surgery, but as a community. And so in our dialogue with, uh, with government, we're trying to tell them, look, you know, we will be collecting data, we'll be giving this as a continuous feedback to you, so then you can see how well we're doing. And if we do need 
to adjust procedures, then we will. And uh, however, on the basis of what we're doing in the international context, we think we're taking steps over and above what's happening in many other countries, including, for example, Ireland, which has just reopened to, um, uh, to general dental practices today. And uh, so in view of that, we feel very confident that uh, we're, we're doing something which is safe. But to cover ourselves, we need to have risk assessments, audits, enhanced um, informed consent. And so we need to make sure that everybody's trained. And uh, providing we check all of those boxes, then in the unlikely event that there is an untoward um, uh, event, then we're protected. You know? Absolutely. And that's the key, isn't it? Auditing and being sure and confident that we have the right systems in place so that we don't feel at risk as well of ever being exposed to have done something wrong if we've had the right training and we've got the auditing and everything in place which we're also so accustomed to doing through CQC and all the auditing we currently carry out I think it's certainly listening to you speak and reading this document I would highly recommend that you know other clinicians do gain access to it and and do read it and for instance Mark if people are interested, which I'm sure every listener is, in getting hold of this document, how could they read it? We've got it um, available um, both on our uh, Pandora uh, website, um, also it is more uh, generally available on the internet, and we're going to be um, reposting it on all the social media sites. And uh, um, Plus, if anybody um, uh, does particularly want to have a copy and they're unable to find it for any reason, then you know you can just email me. Um, my email is very easy. It's just drmarkcronshaw at outlook.com. And just send me an email. I'll send you a copy because we want to... We want to plaster the world with this protocol because by comparison to many of the other protocols that are available which introduce these horrible high filtration masks uh, i think half my staff would leave if they made, had to wear those or alternatively having these long layoffs where we just wouldn't have an economic practice this is um uh, something which is practical it's sensible it's workable and uh, we hope it's going to be the core of uh, what will turn into a highly workable um uh, set of uh, of guidance um we are trying our best to work with the, um, the task force and the joint deans from the faculties. We've already informed the Department of Health. Um, we've sent this off to the Office of the Chief Dental Officer of Public Health England. You know, we're, we're, we're plastering the world with it. You know, and everybody we've talked so far, they've all said, yeah, this is, this is good. We can work with this. This doesn't involve doing too much at all. We just have to get organized. And it's offered a way forward, which is why I said right at the outset, this is good news. You know, we're not going to have to, to um, uh, go through such onerous procedures that it makes our life um, uh, a misery, you know, either for ourselves or for our patients. And I see, I couldn't agree more. And it's clearly set out. It's readable and it's very understandable. And I think that's the key, isn't it? Reassuring people, the listeners, that this is the way forward back into practice to treat patients. I will also... Mm -hmm. Sorry, Mark, continue. It's in order to get back into practice because uh, we've got this backlog of untreated disease. We've got all those people who are not getting their screening. Our poor patients, and we're getting calls every day from people who've got problems, and yet we're not permitted to be able to see them face to face. And these are people that we've known for years, and many of them are very anxious. They've formed a particular bond with, with us because they know that we care and that we really look after them. They trust us, and yet they're unable to see us. I mean, what sort of message does that send out to the public, you know, we need to get back to work as soon as possible. As soon as it's judged safe by the authorities, we want to be back in there in order that we can reach out to our patients and help, you know, because uh, there are many of them who are in trouble. And uh, uh, we know that in my practice, many of my patients are really looking forward to coming in to see us, you know. I think they miss us, funnily enough. Of 
course they do. <laughs> and we miss them. And I think as well, also for the listeners, I will be sharing all the links that Mark shares with me for ways that you can access this document so that you can gain access to it and reassure yourself moving forward. I just wanted to touch on one thing before we close this podcast recording though, Mark. We have spoken about four-handed dentistry for hygienists and therapists. And moving back to practice, of course, with these slightly more stringent um, cross-infection protocols that are going to need to be adopted. What are your thoughts on this? I think that the days of a single-handed um, hygienist home to manage all of her cross-infection control, manage her room, and then get ready for the next patient, uh, they're, they're coming to a close. I think in view of the need uh, to properly use um, uh, people like hygienists and therapists as uh, highly qualified professional people, it's a dumb use of their time. And so as such, I can see many justifications for introducing it. I think it's very likely that this will end up as being a, a, a new standard, a new requirements. I think it's to be welcomed because uh, um, the uh, the value to my practice and my hygiene and my therapist is very high. And they do many other things besides uh, uh, their periodontal management and uh, uh, particularly in view of the advent of new technological approaches such as scanning and intraoral scanning of patients and um, as well as the many other uh, clinical functions that they're doing. If we can best use their time that's wise Plus, in terms of cross-infection control, if they haven't got an assistant that, I think it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to ensure you're properly managing the potential there for infection. I know that Professor Mike Lewis from uh, Cardiff University is very strong on this. When we were preparing um, this document, he insisted that we put in um, the uh, summary at the end of the document that um, four-handed dentistry um, is the recommended way forward. And I expect that by the time this has finally gone through all the necessary processes to be evaluated, it may well turn into a new mandatory standard, which I think is to be welcomed. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And certainly moving forward, I'm sure for the listeners that are hygienists and therapists listening, they will feel very reassured to hear that. And also what's the addition to the document? So do look out for it and follow the links um, around the podcast um, supporting your access to to read this document. And I'm sure, Mark, as well, for anybody that's got any questions I'm certainly going to be contactable and I'm happy to connect people to yourself um, just to spread the word and spread this amongst colleagues to reassure the profession and to get us back into work. Thank you, Victoria. I mean, uh, I'd just um, uh, like to just add that uh, the concern we have is not just for our patients, it's also for the team to reassure them that there is a way forward, that uh, although we have to reevaluate many things that we're doing, that there's the potential for enormous gain in what we're doing. And I think we've got an opportunity to change the way in which dentistry is seen by the public. Plus, I think we can start to embrace some new technological approaches. And it's quite an exciting future we have ahead of us. Although we've got quite a nasty recession, um, which undoubtedly is going to have teeth, you know, um, um, uh, at the end of it all. I'm hoping that some of my patients will have some teeth left with too. Uh, um, so uh, let's get back to work. Let's get back to work as soon as possible. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end this podcast. I couldn't agree more. But just before we end, it's the Smile Revolution Fire Round, which all my I guess get to experience what would you like to see in the next four weeks for the dental profession 
I would like to see us back at work. I'd like to see us able to do the full range of treatments and therapies that are available. I'd like to see a profession which is reinvigorated, where we gather confidence in our abilities to do our job, where we are working together as a single profession in order to address the needs of the nation. That's it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for the opportunity. You know, we've got a great future ahead of us as a profession. Couldn't agree more. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it, rate it and leave a review. Please email me on info at smile-revolution.net. I can't wait to learn how this recording has impacted you. And lastly, don't forget to like, subscribe and follow Smile Revolution on social media for more content. Please engage in the comments section. I will read all and respond to as many as possible. The podcast audio is available on all major platforms and video content on the podcast can now be found on the Smile Revolution YouTube channel. To stay up to date on all Smile Revolution projects, subscribe to the Smile Revolution newsletter by emailing info at smile-revolution.net stating subscribe to newsletter. Thanks for joining me and being part of the Smile Revolution.